Welcome back to the Thriving Lawyers podcast. This is Michael Kahn, one half of real-time creative learning experiences, the other half being Chris Osborne. And uh, we have another excellent interview set up here, a fantastically excellent interview. Sorry for the overuse of adjectives. But uh, uh, I'm excited to have Ricky Kidd here with us. Ricky is a, a friend and a, um, a collaborator. We've done workshops yes. together, Chris and myself and Ricky, and, and uh, you'll hear about uh, in a second a um, couple of the other folks who have been in the workshops uh, with us regarding um, uh, systemic racism, the impact of systemic racism and bias on the uh, justice system. And in that same workshop, we also talk about vicarious trauma and well-being. And we're going to cover all those topics today with Ricky. So um, before I uh, have Ricky introduce himself to you, I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. I uh, don't normally do on the podcast or in our workshops. We, we discourage folks from reading our bios. But I, I want to read his short, and this is shortened, bio, because I think this will this will set up Ricky well and uh, help you understand the, the journey that he has been on and is on. Um, <clears throat> and then Ricky can fill in the, the blanks. So let me just read this to you. In 1996, Ricky Kidd was wrongfully convicted of a Kansas City double homicide. He was incarcerated in the Missouri State Prison System for 23 years. After the tireless effort of professional Sean O'Brien and his daughter, Quinn O'Brien, who was his investigator, and despite 11 adverse appeal and, and habeas rulings, a judge in DeKalb County, Missouri, ruled that the evidence of his innocence was clear and convincing. Judge Darren Atkins, in ordering kid's release, cited recanted testimony of the state's lone witness, who turned out to be the killer, and items of evidence prosecutors failed to disclose. Uh, that is a very shortened version of his journey to uh, get out of prison. But I'll just share a couple other things now since he's been released in his bio. He's begun developing a career as a justice advocate, speaker, playwright, and community activist. And he's on a mission to advance all current and future generations through positive impact. He's the founder of I Am Resilience. And if you could see him now, you'd see him wearing that bright blue shirt that says I Am Resilience on it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, he describes I Am Resilience as a global transformational change platform that helps people tap into their own resilience. All right, Ricky. How did I do? Does that, does, does you, that in, a, in a nutshell, describe your journey? You did well. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely helps describe the journey. It's still been written. So yeah. Um, yeah. we're going to have to update that bio as we continue to stretch ourselves and do more. But it was well said. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So, so why, don't we, um, why don't we go back to the the your wrongful uh conviction 
and fill in any, obviously we could spend the entire podcast, you, you talking about, uh, arrest to release. We could spend more than one episode on that. Um, but what, what is it that I didn't say regarding, uh, your wrongful conviction and your 23 years in prison that you want to highlight as we're starting our discussion here? Yeah. Um, one of the things that is very important for your listening audience to understand, particularly the lawyers and those who advocate on the behalf of others, is that we need better advocacy before, during, and after trial settings. I received the after Professor Sean O'Brien, the Midwest Innocence Project, Cindy Dodge, um, and really others, lawyers who uh, put their hand to the plow, so to speak. But prior prior to the conviction, I received inadequate um, defense I, from the Missouri Public Defender System. It played a key role in what led to my wrongful conviction. So I just think people might need to understand a little bit more why being a lawyer is important um, and not just a criminal defense lawyer, because really both ends of the spectrums fail me. We have a criminal defense lawyer who failed through the public defender system, not that she was a bad lawyer per se. And then you have a prosecutor, a prosecuting attorney who was a lawyer who also failed me by overzealous uh, prosecution of the case, withholding key evidence. Um, and then you had a judge who probably was a lawyer before he landed on the bench who also failed me. A lot of errors, trial, what they call trial errors, took place in my case. He should have seen it. He should have stopped it and perhaps prevented my 23-year nightmare. So when we're talking about thriving lawyers and when we're talking about the listening audience who are lawyers, it is important to understand as we unpack some of our discussion today, why it is so important to identify yourself as a thriving lawyer and make sure you're not one of those lawyers that leads to a form of injustice, as in my case. Yeah, well said. Absolutely. And um, why, why don't you share, Ricky, if, if uh, this is okay, uh, share what were some of the things that uh, your, your lawyers missed or, or didn't do that, that lead you to say that, that your representation was, uh, fell short to say, to say the least. Sure. Sure thing. So here it is. I want to kind of place the scene for you. If you will, you got this 21 year old who's charged with two counts of first degree murder, two counts of armed criminal action. He's sitting inside a Jackson County detention center and here comes this. He knows that he's innocent. The lawyer coming to visit him did not know that he's innocent. Everybody, of course, who's charged is not innocent. And so I know it. Uh, but she comes up and I guess she's trying to ascertain whether what type of case she has. And so I am giving her all that I have to give where I was, what I did. I've looked at the case. She has not had time to look at the case, rather the p police reports. And so I began to immediately act 
as a second chair, so to speak. You have this 21-year-old thriving lawyer. <laughs> Not really, but you <laughs> right. might as well say Because I remember my girlfriend at the time, her father saying, you know, Ricky, you know this case so well, you should be one of the lawyers. The way I articulated, the way I digested the information, the way I was able to put it together and deliver it back to this attorney, this public defender attorney. But she just wasn't in a position. Overworked, overwhelmed, underpaid is what Mm -hmm. most public defender systems consist of across the country. Missouri ranked 49th as one of the worst public defender systems in the country. Um, And so here it is. I am presenting to her a full day's worth of alibi. I was at the Jackson County Sheriff's Department as one of those alibis. Um, I gave an account not just for where I was at the time of the crime, but where I was all day. She did not. Yeah, just just to, shoot. Yeah, just to pause yes, for a second. I just want to make sure that the listeners heard that one of your alibis was that you were at the Jackson County Sheriff's Department. Yes, sir. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and. In- Go ahead. Sorry. In the building, in the building of law enforcement. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. And uh, you say that the, this lawyer, and, ha- and how old was this lawyer, would you say? To I guess, think she guess. was about 30, maybe 31, okay. I believe. Um, and how, my could memory tell, recall. how could you tell that she was overworked and underpaid? Or well, let's not the underpaid of, piece. How could you tell she was overworked? What, what, what was Definitely some overworked. Her ability to spend time on the case. I mm-hmm. sat in the county jail almost a year before trial. I seen her about four times throughout that period, maybe four or five, if I stretch it just a little bit, and at about 30 minutes apiece, um, if that. But let's just imagine if I gave her an hour. Let's say, Ricky, it's been over 20 years. Maybe you was wrong. Okay, fair. Even if it was an hour, four or five times, four or five hours to properly defend a double homicide, it just was not enough time. And so that was one way that it was very clear and very apparent that she was overworked and overwhelmed. In fact, she would say so. She would say, hey, listen, I have six more clients I have to see because she was always short. She may have had an hour and a half to see all six clients. Maybe some clients didn't require as much attention. But again, you have a double homicide trial that you're preparing for, and I'm getting 15, 20, 25 minutes before she has to scurry off and go see another client or get back to the office. I was in trouble, Michael. Yeah. And uh, did, did you get the sense that she... that she cared... Or was she so rushed and overwhelmed that you were just another, and I don't know the answer to this, I'm not leading the witness here, <laughs> that she, sure, you were just sure. another another person that I need to just check off the list, so to speak? No, good question. Good question. And it's a question that the audience probably want to hear. And that answer is, she did not care. In fact, letters were uh, read Letters that was written by her was read in my last hearing before my release, which uh, was astonishing and shocking to the courts. Some of the language that she chose to use 
towards her client who was facing a double homicide. Uh, she was very dismissive and uh, was stating in this letter, one of the many letters that we presented, that um, if she has the time, I would stop it. Stop bugging me, basically. Stop bugging me. Stop having your family to call me. Stop writing these letters. I'll come and see you if and when I have the time. I'll talk to your family maybe once if and when I have the time. It was very uh, demeaning language, and it really showed an expression that she was not interested and that perhaps I was just another case she was trying mm -hmm. to get off her desk. Yeah. Now, we're, I'm, jumping ahead. I'm jumping years ahead here, but I, I want to I just bring this in now so I don't forget. But the, the, the just, uh, what's the word here? Um, I guess poetic uh, thing that's happened, Ricky, is that you are, you are scheduled to give a, a, a workshop, right? A presentation to the same prosecutors or the same ca county prosecutors that arrested you, right? And, and put you in prison. That is Actually, correct. not arrested Michael, you, but you, put you in prison. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was responsible for my conviction. The same yeah, Jackson you. County District Attorney's Office that was responsible for my wrong conviction, October 11th, I'll be going in and I'll be teaching a four-hour workshop called The Cost of a Prosecutor's Decision. Um, mm. The head prosecutor now, Dean Peters-Baker, had reached out. We began communicating and decided that it would be best served if her entire team, a group of 75 of them, would have the opportunity to not just hear my story, but let's unpack it together. And we're going to talk about uh, vicarious trauma, actually. We're going to talk about resilience and how the pressure of, of, of work and personal life can play a role in rush decisions. We're going to talk about unconscious bias, something that you and Chris uh, teach on often in the webinars. We're going to talk about integrity in their advocacy, why that's important. We're going to touch on by the numbers and break down the numbers of what actually is out there according to the National Registry. And then it's going to be some personal uh, back and forth there as I come inside their space and they are able to experience proximity. You know, most district attorneys yeah. doesn't, do not have the opportunity to experience proximity, meaning they don't have the opportunity to come in contact with the exoneree, somebody who has been officially exonerated. I happen to study and show myself approved, so to speak. And so I put myself in this unique position not just to come back in in their office in October and just speak, but to actually teach. And hopefully we all can learn more than what we went in with on October 11th. Boy, that is such a good point when you use the word proximity and what a difference that can make. Actually yeah, being sure. with real people who are different than you. Uh, and or who you have opinions about, or who you um, who you impact with your decision making, but you don't have proximity to the that person or to people in that group, and 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 what a difference! And you see that difference that happens all the time, like a politician who's against a particular 
uh, group or, or some kind of law that might positively impact the group, but they're against it. Uh, but then, then they come in contact. Maybe a child comes out. Maybe a child comes out as being gay. And then all of a sudden, oh, their position changes. Not always, but their position changes on this law because now they're in proximity, not only to uh, uh, any person, but a family member. And what yes. a difference that can make. Yes, 100%. I had the opportunity a few months ago to visit Coke Industries up in Wichita, Kansas. Kansas, a that's very K-O-C-H, Coke. That's K-O-C-H, yes, as in the Coke okay. brothers. A very right. conservative organization over there. Of course, they've also been known, in all fairness, to their plight for criminal justice reform. But that proximity uh, component showed up there. We was there for two days. We viewed the campus. We talked to a bunch of lawyers. And again, proximity showed itself to be of value. Um, I was in Iowa. Iowa. You start off by saying Iowa, right? I was in Iowa, a red state, very conservative mm -hmm. individuals up there. And once again, proximity showed itself of fruitful and value as I uh, interacted with uh, certain legislators and individuals, um, it is important. It is important that we are mindful before we make our final judgment, before we come to a final conclusion that we allow ourselves, all of us, not just red towards blue or blue mm -hmm. towards red, but all not mm -hmm. white towards black or gay to, towards non-gay, but that we all find ourselves willing to be in proximity of what we think we oppose or what we think we are against before we make our final decision. It is an yeah. eye opener. It has been an eye opener for many people I've come in contact with. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't say uh, that, uh, that folks in blue states uh, don't need to do their work too. Uh, there yes, there are folks who, who, who think that they are liberal and, um, and uh, open-minded but still carry biases around with them. So we all, we all sure. still need to do the work. Um, let, me, let me bring you back, Ricky, to your experience um, in prison and trying to get released. And you finally, um, how many years in did, you, did it take for you to meet up with uh, Professor O'Brien? I was 10 years in. Before okay. I fought those 10 years, screaming at the top of my lungs, metaphorically, and finally they landed on the ears of Professor Sean O'Brien. He then went to the Midwest Innocence Project. They began to collaborate and work vigorously towards helping me regain my freedom. So it was in 2007 that I actually began to get some type of traction towards getting to the truth in my case. So it wasn't, for, it, it took 10 years for you really to get competent representation. Correct. And then another 13 of that representation, good representation for you to get out. Right. Sadly. Correct. Yeah. So what, what was the difference in how Sean O'Brien and his team, including his daughter, what was the difference in how they uh, approached representing you as compared to your previous lawyers? Well, they started with uh, a proper investigation. 
I think the truth of any case of innocence, whether at the beginning when a person is charged or after a conviction and they're trying to prove their innocence, it all starts with an adequate and proper investigation. Dan Grothhouse was the investigator who really helped crack this case open, who really gave Sean and the rest of the team the eye to see what had really gone wrong and what was needed to make it right. Subsequently, Quinn O'Brien, as you mentioned, uh, the Midwest Innocence Project, uh, lent their support. Cindy Dodge lent her support. Attorney Cindy Dodge lent her support. And it just became a dream team, if you will. And they systematically and methodically went through each section of my case factually and made sure that they got it right. They set that aside and they systematically and methodically went through case law and make sure that case law was able to match the facts before we went inside a courtroom. They did such a thorough job that the Missouri Attorney General's office had no true rebuttal towards the facts of my innocence and very little fruitful rebuttal towards the legality of it. In fact, they would niggle over technicalities of law, minor technicalities of law that was enough to prolong the case and the battle for 13 years until, as you mentioned, the Honorable Darren Atkins, Judge Darren Atkins said in 2019, no longer, no more, this man is free to go. And, and I want to come back to, to, to Sean in, in a moment and talk about your lawyers. Uh, but I, I want to mention a quote of yours, Ricky, from a book that you have written called Vivid Expressions, A Journey Inside the Mind of the Innocent. You said in that book, and I just I want you to uh, comment on this quote, I was forced to become the light, illuminating everything in sight. I was forced to become the oxygen if ever I was to breathe again. So that I want you to comment on the quote in the context of resilience, uh, how how you were able to um, become resilient, I'm sure that didn't happen overnight, uh, and cope. And what did you do to, to um, keep your head above water, I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it? Yeah, yeah. You know, in prison, it may not be much for people to imagine how dark of a place it is. And so when I say I was forced to become the light, you're in a dark place. Physically, literally. Literally. Right. Um, and mentally, you can find yourself in a dark place and you're looking for light, light that is typically not there. And so when I say I was forced to become the light, illuminating everything in sight, I had to find a way to be the light for myself. And what I end up doing is becoming the light for other people as well, illuminating everything in sight. And when I say I was forced to become the oxygen, if ever I was to breathe again, because prison in such a situation of a wrongful conviction can be suffocating. It can be suffocating. And you're trying to find a way to breathe. And once again, I had to become the light and the oxygen if ever I was to survive. How did I decide to do that or what or some of the how things did you do that? that I, yeah, how did you do that? Yes, yes. Some of the things that I 
did that I think was very helpful was mindfulness. One of the things that the resilience tree or the resilience thread talks about really being mindful of my situation, being mindful of my thought, being mindful of my fears, being mindful of my strengths, and then finding a place to properly put them. I was able to rule them, so to speak, or control them, rather allow them to control me. Um, one of the other things that I was able to do, which I thought was extremely helpful, was step outside of myself. I was able to step outside of myself, which I think is important. I say, rather, one of the things that I talk about is living outside of yourself. So I took programs. Uh, I had life without parole. 85% of the prison population had parole or was going home. And so I did not get stuck in my stuff. I began to help other people with their stuff. I wasn't going home, but Jimmy and John and Donald and Mike was. And so I would help them. So I often encourage people that when you find yourself in your own situation, be careful because it can be like quicksand and you stick a toe in there. And before you know it, you're down to an ankle, then you're down to a knee and then you're up to your waist and up to your head. And so get out of there as quick as you can. People say, how do you get out of there as quick as you can? And one of the things that really, really worked for me was getting out of myself and into what other people may need it around me, being a service to others and not just stuck in my own doom and gloom. Those are just to name a few. There are many and we can yeah. have a series on what those many are. But, Michael, that was just a few things that helped me become the light that illuminated everything else in sight. Yeah. And, um, it, there's actually plenty of research out there that, that says that helping others, that generosity, uh, lights up a part of the, the brain, that, uh, that, um, uh, or, or engages the parasympathetic, uh, nervous system that, and, and so that makes sense to me, uh, yeah. what, what you're saying. And do you, are yes, you sir. still doing, I assume, these are things that you continue to do outside of now that you have been out for how long is it now, Ricky? It'll be two years next month, August 15th. It'll be okay. two years that I've been home. And I think I met you, gosh, you were just a matter of months out. I was. Uh, when, when we met, right? Less, was, less than a year God. for sure. Yeah. Yes, it was a matter yeah. of months. And to your question, I believe yeah. you was about to ask, am I still doing those yeah. things? Am I still relying on those components or mechanisms, so to speak, to help me thrive from within and help other people discover their resilience? The answer is an absolute yes. I continue to do that work. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Thriving Lawyers Podcast. We love hearing from our loyal listeners, so please feel free to email us any questions, comments, suggested topics, or guest recommendations at the following address, feedback at thrivinglawyerspodcast.com. The Thriving Lawyers Podcast is brought to you by Real-Time Creative Learning Experiences, a national provider of continuing legal education and professional development programs that leave participants engaged, encouraged, and equipped to pursue meaningful and sustainable change in their practices, their lives, and the organizations they work in. And by Osborne Conflict Resolution, your experienced guides through the uncharted terrain of business and family law disputes based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Thriving Lawyers Podcast.